דיפלומסי לייב. פודקאסט. What is knowledge in a diplomatic context? And what are the bits of data, diplomatic data, that become information? And how does that information become knowledge? And ultimately, how is that knowledge used by policymakers to make wise decisions? This is the topic of our discussion of the eighth episode of the Diplomacy Light podcast. It is with Diplozone, Dr. Jovan Kurbalia, and with the director of the UN office in Geneva's library, Francesco Pisano. Dear colleagues, uh, thank you very much, Francesco, Jovan, for coming uh, to the Diplomacy Light podcast. Uh, we've chosen a topic that uh, to diplomats perhaps is uh, a very apparent, but I think to many non-diplomats uh, need not be so uh, immediately. And that is this uh, combination of diplomacy and knowledge, how knowledge is created, how is it used, Uh, in, a, in a diplomatic setting. And specifically, since I think we've uh, all three been exposed to multilateral diplomacy, I think that uh, in this sense, in multilateral diplomacy, there's a very unique way uh, of uh, doing that. So let's jump right in. Um, what I would just say before we do is to give uh, perhaps um, a slight primer uh, on uh, what we mean when we were saying knowledge uh, in this setting. And a very uh, easy uh, kind of classification is one that is used in information and communication technologies. And that is this uh, between what is data and then what is information and what is then knowledge. There is another one that, and that is wisdom, but we'll get perhaps to that uh, near the end. Uh, let's start with this. So data in, in a multilateral setting, I would just say, is any event, anything, any uh, piece of information that, that happens. It can be a non-paper by a chair. It can be uh, something that is circulated, uh, among others. Uh, it becomes information when, when it becomes put into a given context. And that context can be different, but this is what makes it uh, really information. Uh, it, when we get to knowledge, I think this is where the human element is most apparent. It's what, how humans use uh, knowledge, how they use rather information to create uh, knowledge. So Francesco, if I may start with you, um, you uh, are the director of the uh, library of the UN office in Geneva. Uh, it is the place where in a multilateral setting, uh, we have kept the collective memory, including from uh, the end of uh, World War I of the League of Nations. Uh, but even today, uh, the UN office in Geneva, when so many different uh, aspects of multilateral work going on, uh, there is a lot of knowledge that is being created. Can you please share a bit uh, your insights from uh, looking in from there? Well, first of all, thank you for, for inviting me. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, I think um, your, your primer is... is, is is excellent in the sense that there is a fundamental link between diplomacy, the practice of diplomacy and information and knowledge. We are a center of um, multilateral knowledge since 1919. This library was created in 1919 together with the archives, which is a peculiarity in the, in the, in the world of, of information management because normally the business of libraries and the business of archives and records management are two different industries. But in our case, we accumulate that. And, it's, um, and, and it was done on purpose. To create this body of knowledge, we talk about body of knowledge. So there is a part that we do as any other scientific library, which is to accumulate 
knowledge and look after collection integrity for everything and anything that is multilateral and international law. That is our duty as a scientific library, as if we were a scientific library in a large uh, research institute, for example. But then there is this other component that is entirely devoted to the practice of multilateral diplomacy in the UN and before the UN, the League of Nations. And that consists of curating and maintaining and preserving a, a, a body of knowledge that is integral to the practice of the multilateral diplomacy and also a trace of history. So basically there is a lot, I conceive of data and information as things that are in our backs, whereas knowledge and wisdom, and I would like to talk later what lies beyond wisdom, are more forward-looking. And so at any given time, the consumer of information and knowledge is placed on a timeline where data and information are behind that that observer and the production of knowledge and the application of wisdom lies before uh, the, the observer and allows should allow the observer to make what we call informed or wise decisions and that is the fundamental challenge of diplomacy in action when you look at how decisions are made based on what kind of wisdom and using which shared values. And so when we look at all that, if you zoom out, we locate ourselves in the center of that area that is an area of knowledge and practice at the same time. So this is how I view basically uh, the, you know, the cartography of how library and archives of the UN today exist after a long history, because after all, the library and archives pre-exist the UN. They were there in 1919. And the entire building that you both know very well was, was produced, was built to accommodate uh, the League of Nations uh, much long, long before the, the UN. Thank you, Francesco. And, and Jovan, if I may continue uh, right on, on this thread uh, that, that we've set, uh, you've looked at the history of, of development of diplomacy uh, and uh, with that, not just... Um, how knowledge is created, but really the, the evolution of, of diplomacy. At one point, diplomacy uh, as an institution uh, uh, decided to have a foreign policy. Uh, I'm talking about it as, if it as an entity, but uh, we can look at it that, that way. Foreign, foreign ministries uh, didn't exist uh, before, and at one moment they were created in a way to manage uh, the archives, to manage what agreements uh, were made. Technology has changed that uh, in, in several ways, but the constant has remained of what knowledge is and how it's created and how it is used. Can you perhaps share your, your insights on, on this? Uh, sure, Lupcio. Thank you for inviting me. And it's really great honor to be with Francesco, who owns the post and job, which is my favorite job in international Geneva. But we, since we are on the same age, I cannot wait for his retirement to take it over. Uh, but uh, what is fascinating in Francesco's work is this passion about, about job, which these days is not very often, but you can see when you go to the UN Library of Geneva. Therefore, congratulations, Francesco, and uh, great to be today with you here. Uh, Ljubčo, let me just go uh, further back in the history and uh, uh, highlight this interplay between archives, storing, saving knowledge and diplomacy. We go back to Talamarna diplomacy. Well, it was almost uh, 3,400 years 
where you have the first diplomatic archive. It was the archive on the, obviously collected on the, on the, on the stones at that time, but you have not verbals, you have the sort of uh, uh, nice phrases of introduction, praising, exchanging gifts, things that you have today. Fast forward, Renaissance Italy, medieval Italy, the first embassies, the first embassy was established in order to manage archive. Forward to our time, to the first Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as you indicated, in France, the ministry was built around the archive. And then we have, we have uh, the, what Francesco explained, League of Nations and uh, development of archive and library. And it didn't come just the um, pure coincidence. It was a spirit of time. Spirit of time of relying on science, knowledge and other, and other issues. And here I will just add on, on, your, uh, in, on this, uh, let's say, data knowledge, information knowledge, on wisdom side and add another aspect. Uh, by comparing two peace treaties, Vienna Peace Congress 1814-15 and Versailles. Vienna Peace Congress, you have Metternich and Talleyrand making great parties for one year, basically socializing ideas and creating emotional bonding among negotiators. Five big powers, Prussia, Russia, England, uh, France, uh, uh, who was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, they create more or less peace, which holds with many wars, troubles, turbulence, still, till the First World War. We have the end of the First World War and big belief in the trust in science and human rationality. And you have in Versailles, basically in 1819, scientists negotiating the peace. What should be exact formula for the uh, reparation that Germany should pay? What should be exact formula for this and that? We know what happened after that. And this is important caveat and message that we should rely on knowledge. We should rely on information and data, but we should not carry it away by the idea that that by itself will bring a peace and solution of the conflicts. There is that layer of wisdom, emotions, uh, something uh, which is, uh, frankly speaking, paradoxical. When you, when you rely on knowledge, as I do, and, and, uh, and all of us in this meeting, this, this is how we were brought into uh, our educational life, with some sort of Mediterranean, uh, sort of healthy uh, skepticism and uh, skills for managing paradoxes. You have all of that, and suddenly uh, some uh, uh, podcast tells you, hey guys, forget it. It doesn't mean to forget. We have to rely on knowledge. We have to rely on rich resources, like, let's say, UNOG library, one of my favorite libraries on diplomacy, but we have to be always careful uh, what we can achieve with that. And this is where the wisdom emotions start. As multilateral diplomats, as diplomats in general, we don't do a good job of explaining what we do. I think that for many looking uh, from the outside, looking at diplomacy, it's, you know, flute glasses and, and you know, cocktails. Uh, and, and that is actually an essential part of it. Uh, and we should not be shy to, to say it because that is about socialization. That is about an ambassador and uh, other diplomats below the rank of ambassador socializing with their colleagues so that even when there, are, there is trouble, they can do that. To go back to, to the Congress of Vienna, uh, Metternich did as well. Talleyrand brought in the best chef in France to host the dinners that, that were there. And it was to a great degree because of those that it was necessary first on the French side to be able to still be a player 
even though uh, it was after Napoleon and they were uh, kind of the losers of that, they were they were still a, a player. Would you share the same sentiment that there is this value of sharing this common space, creating knowledge? And this is the key thing, creating this common knowledge in these relaxed circumstances. And it's not, not just about the papers. Francesco, perhaps first with you, but Johan, please jump in as well if you wish. Well, I think the, uh, the creation of knowledge is... Uh, has changed a lot over 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 the last maybe 30 40 years uh, whereas uh, you know from the examples that uh, Jovan was mentioning until the emergence of uh, of social media basically uh, the process was always the same everybody knows the the the, the data information knowledge wisdom pyramid and um, uh, everybody knows that pyramid. And if uh, if listeners don't know it, you know, a simple Google search will show it to them. Uh, and that basically goes as follows: data is the raw elements or the raw ingredients, if you if you wish. And information is the combination in, of uh, cleaned and checked data sets that basically add context and meaning. So information means meaning. And so if you compare it to, since you brought in the Mediterranean, if you compare it to making a meal, uh, data is the ingredients and information is the recipe, basically is putting that together, uh, is the meal. Uh, uh, and then knowledge is already a form of first metabolism because you have to process the information. And, uh, and, and that starts giving you insights and the beginning of understanding, but it's just the beginning. Then after the distillation or the digestion of the meal, this is where you have knowledge uh, production. So that is very interesting because that moment has changed radically because now knowledge is horizontalized throughout society. And so you can find it, knowledge meaning what we know. Knowledge is what we know, right? And so what we know used to be geographically located in libraries and archives. And Jovan said it before, we have entire foreign services that were born around the, the, the place of the knowledge storage, basically. But what, what is today um, um, accessible is the knowledge that exists throughout world population, plus library and archives, in basically real time, which is amazing. And that is the fundamental challenge to the diplomat of today. Because this knowledge is now accessible to everyone and can be interrogated live. So how long will it take before important official meetings among member states of the UN and other international organizations will introduce Twitter live surveys to see what is the sentiment out there? What is really the thought of the majority of people? And so that is, I think, is a fundamental challenge that can only be resolved by looking one step beyond what is the metabolism of knowledge. And that is what I call wisdom. And wisdom in international relations is inseparable for, from values, and values need leadership. And today, these two ingredients are dramatically lacking in the international community. And let me be clear about it. Leadership and values 
are dramatically lacking in the international arena. And in the, all the eras that brought change to international relations were value-based. Right or wrong, or outdated or not, those values were there. And today we're lacking that. Yeah, it, it, it really, uh, if you look at that time, many will perhaps, let's say 19th century, it's about perhaps major powers, raw power. Uh, but really, it's, it's also the time of setting diplomatic etiquette of bon ton, of what are acceptable ways uh, and means of, of communicating and, and keeping it. Jovan, uh, on, on, once we've uh, kind of gone into the, the, the realm of wisdom uh, and uh, given, uh, as Francesco did, the important play and role of technology, specifically, let's say, the, the internet. We've seen, uh, as we've discussed before, uh, two trends uh, in this. One is really the initial ideals of the internet, where it was uh, really seen as a, as a liberating space. We've also seen uh, really one would call it stupidification, unfortunately, uh, you know, through social media, through uh, all kinds of things being taken out that are not always conducive. And that is that is humanity. We deal with it as it is. But uh, it is exactly, I think, what Francesco is saying, then it is up to leadership to point the way in a, with a moral compass. OK, this is how we need to go. This is where we can create wisdom which is based on on uh values uh, as properly francesco said jovan would you would you agree yes no let me start with yes let's bring uh, some sort of uh, dynamics in our discussion on uh, on a strong yes side uh, uh, to your um, uh, comment and francesco's uh, yes internet is amplifier it's amplifier of good and bad we started, and I shared a bit of that utopia I started in the 90s with the idea that the internet will make life, uh, humanity better, uh, prosper. And I always, I, I do my digital confessions from time to time by checking my emails and blog posts from the 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but that's some element of utopia is needed in society. We need to, to, to look for a bit, of, a bit of illusions. And what we're seeing currently is, is the very different internet. Internet in the center of geopolitics, internet in the center of, uh, of uh, tensions, amplifier of uh, not only of good, but also bad. And uh, various people trying to fix it, including Elon Musk uh, recently, uh, trying to fix Twitter. That would be interesting. He managed to make Tesla car, he managed to do SpaceX, uh, but I guess this problem is much more demanding to fix the Twitter than to launch the satellite uh, into, into orbit. Uh, on the no side, uh, well, conditioned no side, uh, I'm uh, um, always a believer that diplomacy should be and must be um, about communication, engagement and exchange. Uh, that's uh, what is for our body, blood, for diplomacy's communication. Therefore, that would be the first aim. The second aim would be values. Obviously, if we can communicate and share the same values, that's great. But I'm afraid that there are now tensions between different value systems. And not necessarily on the level of core values, protecting on human life, dignity, that's basically shared. But when it comes down to the more specifics, we have uh, differences which are sometimes manipulated, but sometimes are genuine. And this is a big tension of the internet and diplomacy, which are both global exercises. Uh, they're global in its claim and activity, but they're very local in its impact. 
therefore that element of uh, global local have to be managed carefully I would give a slight uh, uh, advantage or slight uh, sort of if we have to choose I, ideally we shouldn't choose to communication comparing to the forcing the values therefore bringing people in the same room maybe giving them some good food as Metternich did uh, and telling hey you are humans you represent your nations from few thousand in uh, in uh, in pacific to 1.5 billion in china you have to to sort out these issues whatever issues are war and peace climate change digital and other issues that would be just a slight uh, slight uh, comment on on that importance of communication engagement in, in the in diplomacy even if if i can follow up on on that we've discussed this uh, in an informal setting uh, when uh, when COVID uh, happened and started closing off uh, not just borders but really uh, multilateral meetings, it was it was not possible to hold any meetings. Um, and what it, uh, there was a moment of of pause. Everybody kind of froze, stayed at home, obviously. But then work needed to continue, and uh, it did. Um, there were different technologies that were readily uh, available: Zoom, Webex. Um, uh, but but one aspect of that is that these are private companies, right, with their own servers. So all of a sudden we've moved from the creation of this knowledge in what I would call perhaps an international public sphere to play with Habermas's uh, kind of idea. Uh, so where the UN General Assembly, the Council Chambers in Geneva, uh, Room 20, where the Human Rights Council uh, is, where these ideas are negotiated and communicated live between people, all of a sudden it became possible to do it through technologies, and that was perhaps uh, necessary. But we shouldn't forget, these were private companies with private servers on which this knowledge was created. And this can be brought in many different areas, but specifically for multilateral diplomacy, um, what would you say, Jovan, to start off, and Francesco, please uh, feel free, what would you say about this privatization of this international public sphere? Uh, Lupcho, this is one of the, you know, my uh, pet projects and, and uh, hobbies in, the, in the, 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 this discussion. First of all, companies provided a great support for humanity in difficult times. They provided business continuity. Therefore, we should always keep things in the context. And it was, uh, we, we, uh, we keep moving, we continue probably more or less efficiently. We can discuss that, uh, that uh, online. But one issue which is of utmost importance, and I'm still surprised how member states and UN are not addressing it, is that you, uh, uh, you should uh, have the online meetings in a space which is uh, not public in Smith's op op openness. It could be open, but publicly owned open source space. Uh, like you don't meet in the private hotel for Security Council or for the Room 20 or to UN uh, General Assembly. You meet into the, at the UN premises. You meet at the UN premises and on very symbolic level, there should be open source space developed by people all over the world by contributing like they contribute in the palais or in the new york with the stature of denmark fix one room or kazakhstan fix the other room in the un in geneva that's a possible to have a contribution to have some sort of linux for the global meetings 
where we can have open source uh, uh, platforms, when we have data and knowledge, and this is key of our discussion, stored on the, on the, in a secure spaces, protected by immunities, and there is a symbolic level of having UN meetings online, like in situ, into the public space owned by humanity, owned by, by, by the UN. And there is a functional level that the knowledge generated by these meetings is stored uh, legally in protected space, let's say by immunities, but also space that you can uh, capitalize. A uh, uh, bit of shocking news is that it is not that difficult to develop. Uh, there are open source components, Jitsi, there is very vibrant open source community. I have been trying it for two years, but so far I've, uh, I've uh, failed uh, to pull it uh, to pull it through. One of the reasons was that for me it was so obvious and then I go to and I talk to diplomats and others and I said, how do you don't realize it? Now I was a bit uh, emotionally, emotionally and politically naive in that. I have probably to put more efforts to explain these simple two things, three things. Symbolic uh, importance, meet in the public space. Second, store the knowledge in the legally protected space. And third, it can be done as a global inclusive activity of open source community, some sort of Linux for UN or diplomacy. Francesco, what would you, what would you think about, not necessarily perhaps this as a project as well, but your thoughts on this uh, period that we've just witnessed and the, the, the possibilities of providing a, a public space, perhaps through technology uh, coming up? Well, I think, for, first of all, to put things in context, uh, I agree with Jovan, we should mind the context. Now, seen from inside the UN, it was very clear that the context was, first of all, a crisis response context, crisis for COVID, the effects of a pandemic on the multilateral diplomacy arena. So it was in that context of crisis response that we went, we, the UN, went to those tools uh, to hold meetings, notwithstanding the situation. So I do not see the privatization. Uh, it was not lived and perceived like that. Um, so it was simply going to the tool for business continuity. And here I agree with you, but there was this business continuity alerts were flashing all over. How do we do that? How shall we not stop important processes that were taking place? The second context is the multilateralism is in transition. Has been for a while, has been for a while. The mix that we use to do multilateralism has become outdated because it was designed to promote a globalization race where problems were understood as domestic impediments. And now you have global problems. And so it doesn't work. The mix is inadequate. So that transition became apparent. It was revealed by the effect of COVID in a whole new light. So what we have ahead of us is probably a tension between classical diplomacy post, you know, really Westphalian diplomacy state-centric delegation uh, dynamics wanting to restore in-person meetings. And there are many, many reasons that one should go that way. So just simply bring back delegations into the spaces that were designed for that. 
room 20, the assembly halls, etc. That is in tension with another thing because the multilateralism transition that we are experiencing calls for other components to be added. And so I think the tension will be going back into the rooms with a dynamic that has been known and crafted in the 19th century and going forward to a hybrid meeting formats that accept inputs and interaction with other, other bodies of knowledge and other representatives of those uh, bodies of knowledge. It's not so revolutionary. We've done it before. This, this is how we created the Sustainable Development Agenda 2030. It was not the classical process. It was a hybrid process. So if we could plug into that new emerging process and refine it and plug into Jovan's ideas and even pet project, then we would be going the direction that I personally see as the direction of the new multilateralism. I, I'm, I'm known for saying we should stop talking about the future of multilateralism and we should begin to talk about the multilateralism of the future because these are two different things. So what was the future of steamboats in the 19th century is completely different than talking about how do we fly from a continent to another because it's not linear development. There is a jumping there. There is a design for purpose. And that is the magical word. What keeps multilateralism together through its transition is not wisdom, it's purpose. And so we could share some values and we could disagree on other values. But if the purpose is shared, then the success is in the bag. And we have an organization that works like that. It's called CERN. And no matter the differences, the purpose is one, can be written in one paragraph, it is accepted by all. And the purpose of the international community today could be as clear as defeating climate change, solving the migration crisis, and putting an end of the to the escalation of inequalities. These three together could consist in the purpose of the new multilateralism. Today, we are on this side of that fence. We haven't made that jump. Time is running short. Calls come from academia and the social actors with incredible insistence, yet in many rooms is business as usual. That is the fundamental challenge, I think, for diplomats of today, not of the future of today. It's interesting that you mentioned the CERN. Um, if you remember when I was when I was chairing the group of governmental experts on, on lethal autonomous weapon systems, it was in the middle of COVID, my second chairmanship, and obviously there wasn't a possibility to meet. I put this together, this video, and one of the three aspects in the video that I put is CERN to remind exactly of this, that there is in Geneva an example of international problem solving, of the scientific method used uh, in a collective manner where different ideas are, are put into the knowledge mix in order to solve problems. And I've always looked at multilateral really through that prism, if, if it needs to solve problems. Now, you know, we, here we come into several, I think, uh, issues that, that hamper that. One is, as you say, Francesco, the way we've done things. Um, and that is a big obstacle. Uh, but it's, it's not the, the only one. Uh, another, I think, is the fact that 
everybody gets stuck into national positions. And I, if you remember, Francesco, when I was a guest at your podcast, we spoke about this, how um, it is really more important to look at interests than it is to look at positions. And I think many countries in multilateral settings uh, are given by their foreign ministry a set of instructions and they don't communicate back. Uh, well, let's perhaps try to change this and that because they're afraid of being blamed as is often the case of being there too long. You know, this is in diplomacy, this thing. He or she has been there, wherever that is, uh, a bilateral posting or a multilateral, too long. They, they're starting to see things from that perspective and not from our national position perspective. But actually, this is exactly what we need. We need this perspective that is common. Uh, uh, this is open for either uh, of the two of you. Whichever wants to jump in, please do. What brings to mind, I, I go first, because what brings to mind is something that I've read not so long ago, which is under the umbrella of, of, of the consideration of the new diplomat. And I've read the following things. In future, diplomats as a community, diplomats as a community of professionals will be tasked with the incredible responsibility to be the connectors between the logist of governments and the reality of people, people as in the peoples of the world. Because who in the end is going to tell government of country A how people really feel in continent C? Diplomats. And that role that compensates the, the dire execution of capital instructions. And it, it really balances out and brings reality, the real reality, into government. And going back to the chain, the pyramid we were mentioning before, data, information, knowledge, wisdom, purpose. And I think that is, if, that is very, very, very close to what probably diplomats will be doing in the future of, uh, of an international society that will be ultra-connected, ultra-live, yet with processes that are traditionally delegation-based, but immersed in a, in a, in a, in a bath of, of, of knowledge that evolves at the speed of light. I, I believe that diploma, diplomacy as a bright future in, in after the transition. But we have to take the transition by the horns. We have to take it with courage. And I wonder when diplomats will rise and say there is more to it than capitals are asking us for. Go on, sure. please. Uh, we completely agree, uh, uh, Francesco, I guess, Lubcho and all, that uh, diplomacy, uh, have, uh, diplomacy as a profession has a bright future because the world is interdependent. Well, people try to solve conflicts by military forces, we are seeing these days, but I think uh, there will be more and more limits to that. But what Francesco said, that diplomacy will be differently performed. And uh, there are a few uh, dynamics that we have to follow carefully. This is the old one uh, of uh, dynamics between capital and embassy or delegation, people on the spot versus people in the headquarters. And you can recall the old uh, anecdote with Jefferson, who was uh, 
Jefferson was sent as ambassador to France and the people in State Department said, hey, we haven't received anything from him for six months. We should ask him how is he doing. It was, well, two centuries ago almost. And uh, uh, that was that was a different time. But now uh, headquarters knows quite a lot what's going on in the particular country. But it doesn't know what is becoming increasingly important. This subtle elements, uh, corridor talks, dynamics, dilemmas, this emotional layer, which Ivo Andrich, Nobel Prize winner and diplomat, developed lovely in his definition and description of, uh, of, uh, of diplomats. That's probably the, the, the first point that we have, uh, to have to keep in mind. The, the second point, which is important and we should not forget, is representation and sim symbolism. We live in era of identities. Uh, with all good or bad aspects. And diplomats are carriers of identity and symbolism and representation. On very, uh, let's say, socially responsible way, uh, behind them, there is a country. There are people. From 1.5 billion in, uh, in uh, China to a few hundred thousands in, uh, in, uh, in Pacific Islands. But you represent somebody. And that element of representation should not be underestimated as we move more and more towards functional diplomacy. How to solve the problem, how to deal with, uh, with issues, that element of the flag, and I'm uh, representing my people, will become important and I think we shouldn't underestimate. There may not be uh, countries represented, 193 or whatever is the number of countries today, there may be local communities, we may go more and more towards medieval uh, diplomacy where you have the uh, hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of the local uh, sort of uh, entities uh, going to negotiation being represented, including in Westphalia. One of the big problems in Westphalia it was that you didn't know what to do with these uh, hundred uh, duchies or entities from the uh, Holy Roman Empire. Therefore, I said, hey, let's put them together in some sort of states and, uh, and uh, manage it. Therefore, those are two aspects which I we have to follow carefully as diplomacy evolves. Uh, if, if, uh, as the, there is a major transition of the profession. And how is it going to happen? Probably, uh, and uh, uh, I, I like to quote Hemingway here, when they asked him how he got uh, uh, to bankrupt, his business went bankrupt in Cuba. And his answer was uh, in two ways, uh, uh, gradually and suddenly. That will be probably how we'll be seeing uh, gradual uh, changes and then sudden changes like, let's say, COVID-19 brought online meetings. We have been discussing it for, Lubcho knows, for two decades, online meetings. And then you suddenly, the next one morning, people were online learning how to adjust, to use it, to have business continuity. Therefore, that would be reflection. Thank you. Francesco and uh, Jovan, please uh, feel free to, as well, some concluding thoughts on how do we do this uh, exactly? How do we uh, go from the, you know, the gradual has been happening. Do we need to wait for, for something sudden to happen? Uh, a, a war is happening on, on European soil at the moment, which is a very devastating war. Do we really, as human, humans, uh, need these kinds of kind of wake-up calls, this punctured equilibrium? Uh, or can we get to this place uh, and use the knowledge of the past to better inform our future and to solve the problems that are quite substantial? Uh, how do we do it? Well, I pass difficult questions to Francesco. 
<laughs> well, my concluding thought would be that um, if we look at data information in our possession, there are only two ways um, in in for international relations to go to the next level. One, we always use the first, and the first is um, is to conflagration and, and 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 big suffering. This is how we create the only two global organizations we have had. And so um, we live in, the, in fear that there may be a, a, another San Francisco moment. A San Francisco moment doesn't mean the good side of the conference in San Francisco, meaning what provoked that. The San Francisco moment is a global trauma. But there is another way that we know exists, but we didn't practice, which is the way of elevating wisdom through purpose and going around our tendency to violence and elevating. So there is San Francisco moments and then there is elevation. After all, the history of our species is, is a history of attempts to elevate ourselves. Our ancestors went extinct at least twice. Homo erectus and Neanderthal went extinct. We are a different species. But is our civilization mature enough to go around the San Francisco moment and create a higher level of international relations? That is the question. I think it can be done, but not without checking the box of purpose. So the question in front of the general assemblies of all the international organizations should be item one, what is the purpose? And that is my concluding thought. Thank you, Francesco. Jovan? One important aspect is to put, well, these discussions in the broader context. And uh, we have a cycles of the conflict and, and, uh, and uh, diplomacy and peace. Diplomacy is less celebrated than wars. If you go to any capital, European or world capital, you will have a streets of great generals, but you want, Metternich has a small side street in, uh, in, uh, in Vienna. Uh, although he contributed much more to the longevity of Austrian Hungarian Empire than Eugen Savoyski or those big guys who were going around and uh, extending the empire. Uh, therefore, we have also to, as, uh, as uh, humanity, to, as to say that to revitalize some concepts of being ethically superior, including the word of compromise. It's a it's four-letter world in many cultures if you compromise, but compromise is ultimately ethically superior concept because you, you give the relevance to the other and you uh, try to solve a conflict and tension with the other through the, some sort of negotiated deal. To do that, uh, we need uh, some sort of uh, spaces where uh, people can step back and reflect. Diplo has been doing it in our context uh, uh, Francesco is doing it with UN Library a lot as physical space where you can go and reflect and see what is the purpose, what is the wider context in terms of history, where we are coming from, but more in terms of the future. And uh, these spaces are badly needed. In terms of future, to revitalize ethical value of compromise and diplomacy. To see that, uh, that we pass to the next generation, at least the intact uh, world that it exists, it's not ruined. And to pass also the uh, cultural heritage uh, that we inherited from our predecessors 
and here are the libraries and knowledge and that it's not given uh, because there is now currently a big fight for the patterns of human knowledge sort of privatization of data and AI basically we can say one day that somebody will come to me like it comes to some of my photos uh, which were privatized on the, the tech platforms you'll say hey uh, this is what you mentioned um, yeah it's Arist Aristotle's thought from Nicomachetics but uh, this is now owned by uh, our company because we we provide the platform you know you always add that therefore this is a big battle are we going to keep the open common heritage patterns of what we inherited through books through Shakespeare Dostoevsky Petrarca whatever philosophy to the next generation Therefore, it is a it is decisive, decisive moment. And I think the UN realized that, the UN Secretary General, by uh, starting the process of our common agenda and preparing for the meeting uh, for future and, uh, and the question also of the rights of future generation. One of the proposals they have been making is that at any UN meeting, we have empty chair, which is the chair of the future generation, that we should be reminded that as we negotiate, climate change, peace, digital, whatever, there is somebody who is not present yet in the room, but whose uh, interest we should, uh, uh, we should protect, at least, at least being aware of it, but then uh, protect as much as we can envisage it. That would be, that would be I think, uh, my conclusion of the role of diplomats and diplomacy to foster that uh, great dialogue or social contract that we started negotiating and uh, we have to negotiate in the coming years. Not it won't be signed on the dotted line, but it will be shared understanding of purpose, core values and the way how we can realize it. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, to, to both. Uh, perhaps to conclude on, uh, on, on my side and uh, as by thanking you for, for this great conversation and just perhaps touching on a couple of uh, things in, in, in this is a great idea the great concept I think Jovan of the empty chair if you look at the key concepts you know from from the past you know sustainable development which Francesco mentioned actually this is a key element of what sustainable development is there's two compromises there's two tensions in sustainable development as an idea one is for economic development and the other is for environmental protection and that tension is sustainable development what what, what it tries to resolve the other is actually this intergenerational uh, tension between present generations and future generations. And I think, Jovan, it's a great idea to uh, have some kind of a symbolic uh, way of reminding us that we are also working this for the, for the future generations. And multilateral and diplomacy in general looks for the long term. If we look at 100 years back, this idea of Wilson, of open covenants openly arrived at, uh, have, has materials to, to materialized to a great degree. Some of it is in the public archives, some of it is in the international negotiations in, in UN rooms, but there's also this element that we mentioned of having it at dinners where people feel more comfortable to discuss ideas and to find solutions. And I think it's uh, all about that, about the compromises that are necessary to find solutions for the future. Thank you very much to both of you for uh, coming to the Diplomacy Light podcast. It was a great conversation, uh, but I wouldn't expect anything less from brilliant minds like the, the two of you. Thank you.